Whether on the boat, on the river, or in the woods, Yeti products are by our side. There are many innovative first-class companies in the outdoor market today, but none more so than Yeti. In 2006, they took the industry by storm when they produced their first roto-molded cooler that was reliable and built for the wild. 17 years later, with a multitude of new products, they continue to raise the bar and be the gold standard for all outdoor brands. We couldn't be more proud to have them as a Millhouse sponsor and a family member. Duck Camp makes outdoor goods so you can outdoor good. From the shallow water flats to the mallard-filled marshes, Duck Camp is there to make you feel comfortable and enhance the quality of your time in the elements. Not only do they make some of the best outdoor apparel on the market, but they support many of the organizations near and dear, fighting for our resource in the natural world. Check them out at duckcamp.com and tell them we sent you. Betsy Bullard is a person every fishery wants and needs. She has devoted her entire life to fishing and at 70 years of age still fishes once a week. She has owned and operated a billfish lodge in Costa Rica, ran countless tournaments in the Florida Keys, and holds the 16-pound world record snook. Her love for the Everglades and the fish that swim there runs so deep that she calls herself the Swamp Witch. Here's the lovely and animated Bessie Bullard. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Betsy, I'm so glad you came up and um, willing to come on to this podcast and talk about your heart and your passion for fishing. You've had an enormously big life. Um, Thank you for having me. Of, of course. Um, I think the first time I met you were doing a lot of Waymaster stuff with the tar tarpon tournaments. Is that yes. when I first met you? Yes. I was running a lot of the tarpon tournaments. And, and it's funny, um, people call them Waymasters, but... We weren't weighing anything then, no, thank goodness. measure masters. You're measuring yes. Uh, yes. straps and stuff. Yeah, yeah. What do you remember from those days? A lot. <laughs> what stands out? Um, gosh, what stands out? First of all, the amazing passion and talent 
in those tournaments. And and a lot of egos. <laughs> a lot of egos. It's amazing, yeah, right? She's looking right at you, Dad. Was I a bad one? <laughs> no, you were not. <laughs> to me, you were great. And um, you you were pretty quiet during the tournament. Yeah, I actually I'm thinking maybe the only one you fished that I ran was the year you fished with Rob Fordyce and y'all won the Golden Fly. The Golden Fly, right? I ran a couple of them that Nikki fished, yeah. right? But, and but you were always right. there right. to support him, right? But I think that might have been the only one that you fished that I ran. That you ran, yeah. You were so great. Um, you're you're mentioning when you first came in that you're getting ready to go to uh, Costa Rica. No, Louisiana. Well, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to uh, oh. going with Stu Apt. Oh, yes. I'm I mean, I mean, your life in fishing is so outstanding. But let's just talk about Stu here a little bit because... I would love to talk about he's the He's like Joan Wolf is the first lady of fly fishing. Stu Apt is the, the first man yes. in tarpon fishing. Absolutely. And as Steve Huff said... As much as Stu spoke about himself, he pulled saltwater fly fishing along right with him. Absolutely. He put, for me, the saltwater fly fishing for pelagics on the map. So was he the first one to target sailfish on fly? No, uh, no. Robinson was. Dr. Robinson, Robinson was. But he was the first one to make a big deal about it. Right, right. to help promote it, maybe. Yes, yeah, to, and, to and, make it an actuality for other people to be able to do this. Right, and he also went with, he and Flip used to go right. down and uh, do the bait and switch and teach everybody how to do it. Yes. Do you remember when Stu first learned about that? I mean, how did he just be born as an expert in saltwater billfish fly fishing? Where did he learn? Did you ever talk to him about that? He learned, I think, just by doing it. Right. Just by being Stu and saying, this is what I want to do, and this is how I'm going to do it. So and he, learning. He, he had good instincts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And also, too, let's not forget, Stu's no young chicken anymore. No. This might be his last trip. I know. I'm so, I'm just so blessed to be able to go with him and Janine on this trip to Cuba. I, I just, I'm... Um, so looking forward to it. It's going to be like the old days. Tell me about the old days, because I know your life in fishing is not only as a fisher person, um, fishing for all kinds of stuff. We're going to talk about your, your early years in <laughs> fishing with your dad and, yeah. and, and, and those growing years. But tell me about, you're talking about how Steve, or Stu helped you at one point. Well, here I am in Costa Rica with this lodge. And... It was the Southern Pacific side of Costa Rica, just out of, outside of Golfito, Costa Rica. And it was originally a, a sailfish lodge, but for conventional. I mean, I don't think a fly rod had ever been there, to my knowledge. And so when I bought it, it had been out of business for a couple of years, and the boats were gone and all this stuff. And it was, it was hard putting that together. But it was awesome. It was so exciting. And the first year or two, we did basically conventional. And that's when people started really getting 
this this pelagics on fly desire. And so we pretty much were all pelagics on fly. And the reason why it was so awesome, because you had so many shots every day, so many chances mm. to throw this fly at these big old fish. I think if you had thrown a flip-flop at them, they would have eaten it. Very big, aggressive fish. And yeah. the best part about it is it's probably flat. Oh, yeah. You could water <laughs> ski out to the fishing grounds most of the time. It was awesome. That's important we for my dad. never right? had to call a day on weather, ever, ever, in 12 years. Really? Yeah. Ever. Wow. So uh, let's go back a little bit because I want to find out why you ended up in that position to buy this lodge and you thought that it might work. Let's talk about the early days um, of of your fishing life. Okay. Ask away. When did you first like get the bug and, and, and go, the first fish you ever caught? As soon as I could hold a rod. So I'm saying about, f- I didn't really fish, four or five years old. Um is when I really started fishing. Uh, My grandmother had a place on the Chesapeake Bay. And my dad was an avid fisherman. He loved bass fishing, and he loved fishing down there on the Chesapeake Bay for the the big bluefish and the stripers and all of that. And so he had me fishing. Um, he, He had a boat and all that, and I loved it. And I vaguely remember this, but I remember my dad told this story over and over again. The first real fish I caught was a pretty good-sized speckled trout. I mean, it took me forever to get this thing in. I'm probably like four or five years old. And I'm struggling and struggling, and we get the fish up to the side of the boat, and he pulls the line up and touches the fish, and it gets off. So he didn't even get a picture of it or, you know, I never got to really see it. Did you cry? No, I was like, let's go again. I loved it. (laughs) So he was more upset about it than I was. So So, you were all over it. Oh, yeah. Ever since your first fish. Yeah. And my brother liked, I have a brother that's two years younger. He liked to fish, but he wasn't rabid about it. And so... um, I was always the go-to if my brother didn't want to go. I mean, I was always going. When your dad was a very passionate fisherman. He loved it. Yeah. Yeah, he did. So he you really... so you became best friends with your dad. Oh yeah. Did oh, he like yeah. you more than the than than the sons? No. Than your brothers? Oh no, absolutely There's not. No favoritism? No. Not at all. I can honestly say that. But I was I was the one that was more into fishing whereas my brother um really got into the hunting and he still bow hunts to this day for for turkey oh wow yeah nikki knows a little bit about that i know a little <laughs> bit about that yes yeah. obsessed no i'm not obsessed i'm obsessed with elk hunting and mule deer hunting but yeah. I, I i dabble we, in that turkey realm and mm-hmm. it's fun um but i i haven't i'm not obsessed with it i'll tell you a funny story okay nikki wants to kill a turkey with his bow and arrow Right, and we've got a friend who's got a little piece of property, so we go down there, and, and I'm scratching. I have no idea how to make a turkey. The turkey, I'm scratching, scratching, and some, you know, these turkeys come in, and Nicky's now he's got his shoes off and he's stalking with his with and his socks. He's sneaking over. I see, I see Nicky draw the bow back and releases the arrow. The feathers fly. Right, turkey runs off, stops at about fifty yards. Boom, feathers fly, and Nicky takes off after this turkey. And I'm going, this is this is not going to work, you know. So I ran over and looked for his arrows. I got his two arrows. I went back and fell asleep. 
I, I, <laughs> fell asleep. I, I fell asleep. I'm laying on my backpack, right? And I'm sleeping. The sun's coming up. It's nice and warm. An hour later, Nikki comes back and throws this dead turkey on my chest. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Had to wake him up. Yeah, yeah. sleeping the old on man the job sleeping. there, Dad. Oh, gosh, but I I spoke to I spoke to Wesley, who's a great friend of yours. Yes, a couple of days ago, and she said to mention, um, talk a little bit about your dad and cleaning the ships. Wasn't he a deep diver? Uh, and- so when my dad was in the Navy in his you know young days, he was a hard hat diver, like the big right. hard hat and the big suit and the a boots. Tube, tube for yes. oxygen. And he loved it. And I can remember as a kid, my grandmother, I mean, he was always messing around with that stuff. And my grandmother had a pool at her place in down on the Chesapeake. It was this old saltwater, funky-ass pool. It was awesome. And my dad took an old hot water tank and cut it and built a helmet for me and my brother. (laughs) It even had a speaker in it that we could talk to each other. Wow. And we would get in the pool and like had this little mini helmets on. It was amazing. Do you have any photographs of that? Of those, those no, those I don't. But then my dad went on to be a contractor and we got out of the contracting business. He went back to hard hat diving. Wow. And he would clean boat rails down there in the Deltaville, Deltaville Virginia area. He would, you know, do whatever they do with oyster beds, and he started collecting the helmets. He would go all over the country and pick up these old, you know, green things. And when he passed away, he I think he had nine of them, and he would take them apart. I mean, he um, had Japanese helmets, the Mark V helmets, the, all these different kinds of helmets. And he would take them, literally bolt, every bolt, every nut, everything off, hand polish them so that, I mean, you almost had to wear sunglasses. They were so shiny. Wow. Mm. And so what, he was diving down there to retrieve debris or what was he? Yeah. He was. In in the Navy, yes. It yeah. was to always, you know, looking, retrieving stuff. Gotcha. And, like he's a treasure hunter type of a, you know, uh, passion. Well, I guess for the Not Navy, treasure, if you're trying yeah. to find a piece of something you lost, that would be a treasure. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Um so your family was a hunting and a fishing family. The, the, yeah. the brothers hunted and you fished. Yeah. And then tell me about, you know, the evolution of your fishing. I mean, because it <sighs> continued throughout your entire life, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, let's see. The fishing. It. When I got old enough to drive, I would go to places to fish. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and so I was close to Virginia Beach, and I would drive down there. My aunt and uncle moved to Ormond Beach, Florida, and I would go spend time with them and go out on the headboats and go fishing, and anything to go fishing. And I I had a, a stint of running a horse farm out in the country in Virginia, and there was a pond on the property and I would, that's my first time I ever fly fished was on that pond for bass. Who who brought that fly rod to you? How did that come to be? I'm trying to think. I, I don't even really remember. I think it was a waiter at a local restaurant that was talking about fly fishing. And I kind of went, hmm, tell me some more about that. 
And I think he came over and taught me how to fly fish for the bass. And I bought a little rod and did it for a while. And it really, because it was a small pond and there weren't many fish in it, you know, um, I was still uh, fishing. But let me go back to when, when, let's see, my son was born in 82, and that kind of slowed things down for a while. But when he was, I was still going back and forth to the Outer Banks a lot to fish. And when my son was, I'm going to say, three, we moved to the Outer Banks. And I did a lot of fishing there. Because of fishing, you yes. moved to the Outer Banks? Yes. And what were you doing for work there? I was working at Jim's Camera House. I was also doing a lot of photography, photography then. And so I worked at the camera shop. And it was awesome because... Um, as when my son got older and was going to um, preschool and then, then um, kindergarten, I would drop him off at school and I had time to go down to the beach and fish before I went to work. And down there, everybody drives on the beach. So everybody's riding around in your truck or whatever you had with your rods on the front. And that's just how you were. Right. And so that was awesome. And then um, I spent, I had friends down in Hatteras, spent a lot of time down in Hatteras. And I had a lot of friends that were commercial fishermen because I couldn't afford an offshore boat. Sure, right. You know? And so I did a lot of beach fishing, surf fishing. I joined a surf fishing team. We fished the tournaments and that was fun. I think those were more about drinking than fishing. <laughs> um, and then I went, I'll never forget, a couple of my, my friends were uh, commercial fishermen, and one of them took me green sticking for tuna on a, for a couple of days. That was What awesome. does green stick mean? Well, the boat has, it's like a giant rod in the middle of the Right, right. I've boat. seen that. And it's very flexible. And they had like- A teaser way back there? Like three, but they have hooks. Like, so like it's a long line on the surface. Yes. Well, it's, and it it's like just, one big outrigger on the middle of the exactly. boat. Exactly. Right? And yeah. these things would bounce and bounce and boom, 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 boom. Next thing you knew, you'd have three elephants on it. On one line? Yes. It's a it's so giant. It's a so it's a cable type of thing. Then. Yeah. It, it. This was like a 15-foot tall. Yeah, you see that on, like wicked, an yeah, see on wicked Tuna. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. So that was really a cool experience to see all of that. And I had another friend who took me on, I think it was like a three-night commercial trip to deep drop for tilefish. And that was really cool. I mean, you're out there, way out there. Right. And um, fishing in mostly electric reels because it was really deep. Mm -hmm. But that was really, I mean, just to spend the time out there on the ocean, it was You've amazing. always loved the ocean and oh. the water and the fish. Yeah. Did you, did you become exclusive fly fishing yeah. at some uh, point I or you really, still do spin and bait caster and it all that was stuff? all spin and conventional but how stuff. about today today okay Are basically i'm a fishing whore <laughs> <laughs> like all of us <laughs> I, i'll go for anything with any you any like, kind of gear as long as it's working you like the tug yeah and i prefer fly fishing now just because it's still you know it's a, more of a challenge and it's you know, the contact and the hunt and, you know, all of that. But I will go for anything anyway. I, I'm really, it's okay. It, it's crazy because in your life, 
you had a horse farm you was was that you that bought that farm and mm-hmm. ran it mm-hmm. and then you ended up buying a fishing lodge in costa yeah. rica you talking about the um v in the road you know it was kind of like i went that way and then took a giant u-turn and yes how do you make these radical shifts a little bit crazy <laughs> really i mean did all of a sudden horse ranching appeal to you, you just well that to, was you I know mean, my son was in school and and i was trying to keep my feet on the ground in one place and that was really hard to do but he was getting old enough we always took on his spring breaks we would always go fishing and he loved to fish when he was younger um before he he was a big surfer and so before he really got into the surfing he loved going on these trips with me and that's how i ended up in costa rica interesting yeah and we had gone i think he was 10 years old and had gone down there 10 10 or 11 and had gone down there on his spring break we were the last customers at the golfito sailfish rancho before it closed oh wow and um i ended up marrying my captain oh interesting and we tried to have a little lodge in zancudo but that really wasn't working it just wasn't in my mind, a functional place to have a, you know, a fishing place. Um, the logistics were really getting people there and all that. Anyway, the rancho came up for sale during that time. And um, was it your idea? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was all on board for it, but... Well, I'm thinking here, you go there, you're taking your son to Costa Rica, the offshore sailfish, billfish, mm-hmm. really changed your life. Yes. W- what was it that, that that made you shift all of a sudden? I'm all in with this, this billfish ocean stuff. Well, I'd always been billfish ocean stuff because that's really all I knew ocean you know the surf fishing the offshore fishing um but the billfish but the sailfish stuff you've been doing that before then yeah i had done it a couple times before really loved it but this was in like the wilds of the world in the i mean it was out of the jungle mm-hmm. in the pacific ocean in a beaut- i mean it was unbelievably gorgeous it still is and the fishing, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Yeah, the sail fishing is completely different than the sail fishing on the East Coast. Oh, it's yeah. Like, yeah. 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 That's, that's the place to do it. Big I, dolphin. The year before, we had been to Isla Morada and went offshore fishing. And it was great. We had a great time. But then I went down there and right. I was like, yeah, whole different ballgame. Right. You're fearless. You're yeah. not afraid. You're not afraid to jump ship and nope. and stick your thumb out. I figure I got one chance in this life, and I'm gonna try to make the best of it. Good for you. And I figure if you're not having a good time, why even bother? Right. But you know, very few people do that, and because they're they're the the fear of failure to start with. Mm-hmm. But you're not you're not scared of doing. No. Anything but but pushing the limits. 
And chasing your passion. Chasing yeah. your passion. Chasing the passion because I don't want to be unhappy. I don't want to be miserable. I don't I don't want to be that person. Have you ever been miserable? Oh yeah, everybody's miserable at some point. You know, but but there's always a way out of it. Yeah. Or it has been so far. Yeah. And it's been fishing. Yeah, that's awesome. How now how so how long did you have that lodge in, in Costa Rica before you, so, you pulled well, the plug we, on that? We bought the lodge in ninety eight. And we had to have all, I had had to get new boats. And you couldn't really buy boats in Costa Rica. So I had 11 27-foot Ocean Masters built and rigged out of Stewart and shipped them to the east coast of Costa Rica and then trailered them across the country to the southern Pacific side. Wow. And it was... I can honestly say that part of getting them there was not fun. But they made it. They all made it. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Where did you find all the money to do all these things? I was very fortunate that my grandfather had started a business that did very well. Nice. And so I was able to take this passion and do this lodge thing. And um, unfortunately, when I was at the the biggest point of financial, you know, with this lodge, because it, it wasn't cheap, I'll tell you that. It, it is not an inexpensive lifestyle. And a lodge that needed to be brought up from basically just a closed up building in the jungle on the ocean, basically, Needed a lot of work, needed boats, needed everything. And so I sunk everything I had pretty much into that lodge. And the, the idea was to bring it up to the very top of the business and then sell it mm-hmm. and fish for the rest of my life. Happy dreams. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a damn fun trip getting there, you know. But um, so we bought, I opened it in 98. And when the market crashed... It started in 09 and 010. I had to pull the plug because I went from being booked a year to two years in advance to one client. Oh, God. I can't imagine the heartbreak. Between that and then the house and the keys, you know, the bank was like, hello, we're going to take your house unless you can sell it. And I had no money. It was all in the lodge. And it was a really tough time. It was a really, really tough time in my life. Um, so, did, is the lodge still running? Did you sell it at, I, at a res- respectable no, number? No, I lost my ass. I lost almost everything. Is But there for a while, in the initial stages, you got Stu to come down. You're saying oh, he helped you a lot. We're going to get back to the Stu part. Yeah, it was amazing. The people, the fishing... The beauty, the nature. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Right. Nothing. Nothing. Is that when maybe fly fishing really got under your that's, skin? That's when I started with the fly fishing. I started at the opposite end of the spectrum as, than most people with the, you know, the 12 white rods and the billfish and the pelagics. And and over a few years, you know, I went down a little bit and would get smaller rods and fish for the inshore fish, which was a blast too. Mm-hmm. And... I'm trying to remember. So the lodge opened in 98. And I believe it was either 98 or 99. I came to the Keys on a promotional trip 
to fish the um, Backbone Tournament when BTT was first starting up. To, to help promote your lodge in Costa Rica. Yes. And so, so was it like an au- auction item? or? Yes, something? I, I traded the trip for, cool. you know, and they said, well, you can fish the tournament. I was like, oh, yeah, great. I first time sight fishing in the Keys, I was done. I was done. I, 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 I sold the place in Virginia and ended up moving to Melbourne Beach because it was almost to the Keys, but my son just started college at Flagler in St. Augustine, and I didn't want to be that far away from him. Right. So it was kind of a pit stop, but it was closer to the Keys. Mm -hmm. And oh my God, the sight fishing on a flat? I I totally, my brain fell out of my head. So talk talk to us about that first time you came down to the Keys and you were sight fishing. Were you in Flamingo? Were you fishing Snook and Reds? Yes. And target, and, target, and, and we did, um, yeah. And they hooked me up with this guide who was just starting out in the Keys then, Larry Sidner. Oh, I remember Larry, yes. And he's the one that showed me all about Everglades National Park fishing and, um, and the sight fishing, and he taught me a lot, as did a lot of other guides. Sure. Starting from a 90-year-old family recipe, Wickles are wickedly delicious pickles packed with garlic and peppers, a staple in our skiff and all shoreline lunches. Originating from Sim's grandmother's kitchen to a pantry near yours, from pickles, okra, relishes, and spreads, check them out to elevate all of your meals to the next level. Papas Pilar is a spirit that embodies adventure. Named after the late, great Ernest Hemingway and his boat, the Pilar, the name says it all. This ultra-premium blended rum is hand-selected from around the Caribbean and blended by master blender Ron Call. After a long day on the water, when the sun is descending the sky, end on a good note with Pilar by your side. Go support them at papaspilar.com or a liquor store near you. But that was your first trip. Yeah, and I'm still fishing with Larry. Still this- tournament fishing with Larry. We're like, but it's great. Do you, you have- get, do you guys yell at each other? Oh yeah, <laughs> not so much anymore. But um, not we're too old for all that now. But we, you know, it's just it's like being at home fishing with him. Well, I, when I called you uh, last week, you you told me about Snook in Costa Rica. Ugh. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about that. So, um, and we'll get back to Adam Marauder, but I, w- I want to hear. Okay. I want to hear this adventurous. Okay, so I had done the sight fishing and the snook fishing in Isla Marada in the back country, and I just you know many years and a, a lot of time with a lot of different guides and listening to everything they told me. And I would ask the questions, why is the snook here? Why is the snook eating at this time? What are they eating? How do they eat? I, you know, and I got all my answers and I listened. Do you take notes? No, I listened. I listened very well. And so in Costa Rica, we were in the Gulf of Dulce. And at each end of it, there were mangroves and a river system. While one end was fished pretty regularly commercially and a lot of stuff the other end nobody even went back there and 
I was out with my husband who had, knew some of the commercial shrimpers and we would buy our shrimp from them, from the from their boats. And we went to pick up the shrimp load and I saw a 60 pound snook that they had caught in the Gulf. There, in the nets. In the nets. Uh, I just lost my oh. shit. Oh my God. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And we tried the one river that got fished a lot that the guys knew about. And, you know, it wasn't anything spectacular. Every now and then somebody local would pull out this giant snook, you know. So I started, I was just itching to get back at the other end. So I ended up shipping over. Plus I was just, you know, when the boats were all out fishing and it was so hot. I, I Anyway, I ended up shipping over a, a, a bay boat for myself that went pretty skinny. It was a ranger. And... um it had a jack plate on it and everything. And I started going up in this other river, which was really tricky because it had flats on each side of it. And if you didn't know where they were when the tide came up, it was bad news. Because that had a big uh, tide difference yeah, down like there, 11 didn't it? feet. Yeah, that's really big. So I spent a lot of my downtime doing that, going up and down in there. And if there was one of the mates or one of the captains that weren't fishing, we would go and just, and I would watch the tides. And I would look in these places up in this little river system. When the tide went down, okay, what's under that? And I saw a lot of stuff before I even put a rod in. And so, um, finally, and the moon and the tides and everything. And so, I, it was the right, to my knowledge, which had not been really tested yet. I said, okay, it's now. And I called a friend who was in Golfito, a, a woman, and I said, do you want to go get a snook record? And she was like, yeah. So, we went, and I said, all right. And we were fishing live thread fins. And I said, okay, drift your bait back, right? And I said, stop right there. And within 10 minutes, she was hooked up to a world record. And so we got that one, and we went the second. How, how big was that fish? God, that one was, um, God, I don't, I don't even remember. Why didn't you want to catch it? Well, just, I'm going to say it was like 18 pounds or something like that. And this, we went the second day, and she got another world record. I said, all right, get off the boat. <laughs> but by then I had to wait for the next cycle of the tides and everything. And so a couple of weeks later, I went with my husband and I and, and and we took a mate. And they were like, you are never gonna catch anything here. And I'm like, watch, and watch me. And then I got my record, which was thirty seven point seven pounds. It's a big snook. Oh, yeah. wow. Is snook your favorite fish because your necklace has a snook there? Yes, I love snook and I love bonefish. And unfortunately, I lean more towards snook these days because the bonefish in Alamorada certainly is not what it used to be. Yeah. And the snook fishing still healthy. Yeah. 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 Very cool. So then you made the move to Isla Morada. Yes, I still was running the lodge, and the lodge was doing well, and I, and I ended up moving down to Isla Morada in like 2000, I think. Because you were in Melbourne when it was it when your son got yeah, yeah. So did your son get out of college when you moved from Melbourne? He was settled. He was good. 
So um, he was in Orlando. He ended up at um, Full Sail University and graduated with two degrees. So um, I felt very comfortable in, in going down and um, moved in. I want to say it was 2001. Finally got to the Keys. And and still running the lodge and everything. Um, and so to me, I mean, I was living the dream life. You know, I had the lodge in Costa Rica and fishing in Isla Morada. And it was it was good. My son was happy. Was it difficult running a lodge and trying to fish a lot? Because I would think running in the lodge would take up all of your time. Well, when the boats all left in the morning, there was, you know, a little bit of work to do. And I had a wonderful manager. Oh, he was amazing. Norman Mena. He was awesome. Bless his heart. He's no longer with us, but he was the best. But then there was like between like 9 a.m. and 2.30 p.m., when there was really nothing to do, and it was too hot to really do much unless you were on a boat. And and then I ended up getting that boat. A lot of times, you know, I'd go out with the guys to catch bait or, you know, there I was. There were lots of ways to go fishing. You just love being on the yeah. water. Yeah. Good for you. Uh, what happened when you got to Island Marauder? What was your life like then? Wow. Um, it was just all about fishing. All about fishing. And, and, you know, trying to work with this conservation stuff because it was beginning to be real noticeable, especially in like, see, I really started fishing a lot in Isla Morada in like 2001. And by 2010, it was very evident that things were going downhill. And then we had the big freeze. Yes, 2010 which, was which like... It smoked everything. Yeah. Before we get into the conservation mm-hmm. uh, part, um, I want to talk about, you know, about tournaments. And you and I spoke before mm-hmm. because you, you've, you've competed in, in a lot of different tournaments. Um, yeah. You know, the five-day all-tackle with the men... Backcountry fly, the spring, the Lucerne, mm-hmm. which I think you're saying that you're running, you're running the Tarpon Cup, Lucerne Tarpon the Cup. The HLM Tarpon Cup, I'm running that now. Yeah, the ladies' Tarpon fly. What is it about tournaments that, that <laughs> pulled you to, you know, do what you've done and participate as, as, as often as you have? Okay, so this is, <laughs> to me, it started out as a great excuse to go fishing for multiple days in a row. I mean, oh, it's a tournament. I get to fish three, five days in a row. I'm, a, I'm game. And I was with my people. I was with the people who understood me. And everybody was all about the fishing. And it, for me, that was my social, it still is my social activity. That's, you know, the kickoffs, you know, the banquets and... Did, and then you ended up winning the, the sailfly tournament in Guatemala uh, yeah. with Wesley Locke. Yes. Against all the men? I mean, everybody? Was there many, any other women that were fishing in the tournament? Was that mostly a men's tournament? Yeah, there's uh, Robert Collins' girlfriend was fishing with him. Okay. And how many boats are in that, that tournament? In Guatemala, I think there were maybe 10. 10 or so. How cool is that? The best part of that was watching Wesley Locke catching her first billfish on fly. Was there any screaming involved? Oh, 
my throat still hurts. It was that was one of the highlights of my life was watching her do that. And just she came out of the box hot. She killed it. She killed it. Is she like a daughter you never had? Absolutely. Absolutely. But even better because she's not my daughter. <laughs> Do you consider her more of a friend or a or a mother daughter relationship? A yeah. friend. She's got a great mom. Yeah, she was just awarded the uh, conservation award yes, uh, last year by I, Captains for Clean Water. I was so proud of her. That's so awesome. proud of her. But but you've had a, a big life in conservation. You saw it right away oh. that there was an issue. What did you see? The degradation of the grass flats first and the water i mean oh my god the water changed so i mean it was like one day you're back in garfield bite back there by flamingo in the everglades in the national sure. everglades national park catching your face off just fishing fishing catching snook Clear catching water, redfish everything. catching tarpon everything just uh, it was amazing and then the next year there's like hardly anything the hypersalinity was just, just, it just all of a sudden, the water back in those bites had higher salinity than the ocean water. Grass was dead. I mean, it was just, it was stagnant and brown and smelly and no fresh water. Yeah, I heard people, I heard guides talk about that, that era when they were running through snake butt or something. Their bait would die because of all yeah. the, the bad water getting yeah. into the live it wells. Was, it, it just, I know it wasn't overnight, but the noticeability of it was like one year it was awesome and the next year it was like, oh my God. I'll never forget, I was fishing with Luis Cortez when he first started fishing, Captain Cortez, who has now won three gold cups. Um, and we went back and fished like back around snake bite and we came in and I caught, I think it was, um, one snook and one redfish on fly and one snook on spin, something like that, but th three fish. And I came back in and somebody asked what I had done that day. And I told them and they went, wow, you had a great day. And I almost choked three fish. And I caught the three fish that I saw. That was it. Didn't even see another fish. No. And what used to be the fishiest spot in the universe. Is that when you realized you need to use your voice and help out as yes. much as possible? Absolutely. That day for me was like a big turning point in, like you said, using your voice. I said, I can't sit by and just watch this national park die. Do you see it getting better at all? It is getting better. And honestly, I am not a scientist. Um, I mean, it got really dark there for a while. And, right. And I see grass coming back. Oh, nice. Um, I think what they're doing in getting some fresh water back there is helping. We've also had a lot of rain. Um, and every time we have a storm, a hurricane or a tropical storm is really great for that area, for the national park. But what I'm hoping, what I'm, what, what we're not seeing are the little critters that the big critters eat. I'm hoping that they'll start coming back. 
bait, I'm, I'm the hot, bait fish. Yeah, and the the things that the bait the, fish eat. The shrimp and crabs and yeah. that kind of stuff. Well, you you call yourself a swamp witch, <laughs> which I think is the best name of all time. I've heard you and Wesley talk to each other, swamp yes. witch. Where did that come about? I was fishing with Wesley one day, and we were back in the park fishing, and I don't know. I, I don't really remember the exact circumstances, but we were just, Wesley and I have the best time. We have the same sick sense of humor, so we're laughing all the time. And we were back there, and I was lamenting about the state of the Everglades National Park and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I just, you know, I could live back here if it weren't for the bugs, but I could live back here. It's just so sad. And I said, I'm just like an old swamp witch. <laughs> and <laughs> oh boy, she never let that go. And that's how that started. And so then since we're so close and did a lot of fishing together, she was my baby swamp witch. <laughs> but now since she's so big into the conservation and I'm such an amazing angler and conservation person that she is a full-blown swamp witch forever now. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What is it about, um, you know, being back there that you love other than the flora and the, and the fauna? Because it's darker water, it's hard to see the fish. Um, it's just so wild. It's like Herman Lucerne. He lived his whole life yeah. back there. It's And I see something different every time I go. And I can't explain to you why it just, but ever since the first days I would go back there with Captain Larry, it there was just something about it. It's just so unique. And, and there's not, not another ecosystem like it in the whole world. Mm -hmm. And I've heard it um, explained as the eighth wonder of the world. And I really get that. I really understand that because it's just these mangroves and the roots and the just the whole water system and, and the yeah. the critters and the, the flora and the fauna and the you know and it just uh, watching it die is just heartbreaking heartbreaking I, going back there, you used to see all kinds of animals, wildlife, deer and, and raccoons and otters and I, all kinds of stuff back there. You don't see it anymore. Nothing. What uh, Birds, lots of birds, but mm -hmm. no, no critters. I remember going back going back there when you know you let me take the skiff out for the first couple of times i was in high school and i'd go down there by myself into whitewater and flamingo and stuff and i used to be so nervous uh, nervous and excited because it was so wild yeah i've never experienced a more wild wilder place in florida than back in whitewater and if anything happened i was fucked i didn't know how to work on the motor oh, i didn't know yeah. how to do anything You're stuck I was, you have no cell reception, but I used to get so nervous and, and excited because you never know what you're going to see. You could really score back there. There's dumb fish. You know, around a bend, there could be three crocodiles. It's just, I don't know. I, get, I, I still get that feeling of going back there. Yeah, it's like uh, when we used to elk hunt, we'd go over a different ridge that we'd never hunted before and drop into a ravine. Mm -hmm. And everything that you see is new. Right. And we used to always fish the ocean side or down in the lower keys, but whitewater, I was always afraid of getting lost. Mm -hmm. But I never I, pushed it very far because I'm just a pansy when it comes to that kind of stuff. Well, I would never go back there without a guide, ever. 
I mean, because it's it's like that, you know. You're nervous, but you're so excited, yeah. and, right? You know, and you go around these bins and all these little creeks and stuff, and you just don't know what you're going to see, right? Well, pretty much now you don't see any animals, but still, the and the fishing can be exceptional, but it can also be a big zippo. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's changed a lot down there. Obviously, Isla Morada, it's uh, crowded. The traffic. Uh, um, all the boats on the water. How do you deal with that after having seen it, you know, in the 20-some years ago? It's hard. And I tried to leave in 2019. I In November of 2019, I moved over to Pine Island thinking I could get some part of old Florida, how it used to be. And that was, didn't, it lasted 10 months. <laughs> what happened? Why didn't you like it over there? Um, the water was very, very small, very small compared to what I was used to in, in, in Isla Mirada. And, um, it was during COVID when, when that, I mean, I went in November, so COVID really started in February and, you know, the shutdown and all of that. So I was kept very busy with the house renovation and the yard renovation. And I had a little skimmer skiff. And I would blast out the mangroves back there and go fishing and do all kinds of stuff. And um, fishing just wasn't good. I, I'll tell you this. I fished with, well, I fished 15 days between November and like mid-April with four different guides and caught two fish. Oh, man. Hmm. Great guides, too. They were all great guides. What was their excuse about the poor fishing? Fish don't, there's just not many fish there. They don't eat. How do you make a living as a guide when there's yeah. no fish? Anyway, um, so I came back to Isla Mirada for the ladies' tarpon fly, which was canceled due to COVID, but we came anyway to fish with the guides, and I spent the whole time crying. I don't know what, the first minute I got out on the water, I just lost my shit and just cried the whole time. When I left Isla Morada, I called my friend who's a real estate agent and said, find me a house. I got to come home. So I was back September 1st. And so I know that's my home. And I'm just going to have to learn how to deal with what it has turned into. But it's my home. And that's how I get into the park. Good for you. For fishing. And it's still... I've been very fortunate to fish all over the world. And um, after the lodge, I, I, I had some great gigs hosting trips all over the world. And my opinion, Isla Mirada is still some of the best fishing in the world. I agree. Yeah. Um, but it used to be a fishing community. It used to be called the, the what, the um, capital of the world yes, sport, fishing, sport fishing, fishing sport fishing capital of the world and i'm a i'm afraid to say it's turned into a resort town corporate resort town mm-hmm. and it's sad rick ruoff said it very very uh very succinctly somebody asked me recently uh, who was what one statement or who was the most impressionable uh, impressionable person on the podcast of our hundred guests. Mm-hmm. And we were talking to Rick about the same issue. I said, Rick, you were the 19th guide yeah. in Isla Mirada. How do you deal with what you see now? 
he said, you know what? I was out. I was going to fish one more year to fulfill my commitments to my, my long-term clients. And then I was going to move West and stay West. I got back that next year and everybody at Lorelei's and everybody were saying, Rick, how are you, buddy? Mm-hmm. Missed you. Love you, buddy. And then he realized it was not a them problem. As far as all the boats on the water, it was my perspective. Yep. He said, I just had to change my perspective. And he's exactly right. Yeah. And that's what I had to do, too. Um, I, I'm much happier being there than not being there. Yeah. Um, and and my, my, my fishing people, they're there. You know, I missed them. I really missed them. Yeah, it's That's a community so cool. down there. Yeah. I remember fishing the tournaments and going to, you know, the Lorelei at four thirty five in the morning oh, for yeah. breakfast and first person I'd always see is Betsy. Yep. Right there <laughs> getting straps. Yeah, yeah, get your straps, get your stick. And it was so cool to see you, you know, being the first first person there every single day of the tournament was seeing Betsy and signing in. And that was yeah. so cool. Uh, yeah, you you are the glue that holds a lot of that community together. Well, I loved running the tournaments, and I got so fortunate because I was saying about the you know the lodge closing because of the market crash, and I had to sell my. I was fortunate; I was able to sell my house, and um, got into a much smaller place. and And thanks to Charlotte Ambrosio, who ran all those tournaments, she was retiring, and she offered me her tournament list, mm-hmm. and that saved my ass. Yeah, that's. I awesome. mean, because I needed a job. Yeah. And um, so, and it was awesome because I had fished, not all of them, but a lot of them. And I fished a lot of the guides and I was with my people. Right. So it was awesome. You know, I've always spoken about the tournaments being so cool because you don't really get to see all the guides together in one mm-hmm. spot and the anglers too. So yeah. it was, I mean, I think the community uh, comes together uh during the off tournament season because they've got to become so close during those tournaments. Mm-hmm. They became brothers, mm-hmm. um, brothers and sisters both. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're at the supermarket. You just, you can't wait to go over and say hi. I know. And, and the base of that whole connection was the tournaments, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yes. And but living there, you know, being a full-time person there is not for everybody. <laughs> And, um, you know, you, you, you just learn to support each other in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Would you like to see more women compete in these tournaments? Okay. Um, they are beginning to. Um, I was just down in the lower key supporting two of my friends, lady friends, who were fishing the IGFA permit tournament. Um, Kat Vallelie was has fished it, but Mary Lee. Oh, great. She fished it for the second year. And Lily Bertram, who runs um, the lodge in Punta Allen, um, was there fishing it. Oh, nice. And so I went down to support them. I was so happy to see them doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I never understood, for me, and this is for me, I never understood why, and I, all I can say, use the term someone, and I don't want to say a woman or a man. I would say someone wouldn't want to fish a tournament, right? Um, if that's what they liked to do, right? And I and I heard so many women say, "But there's men fishing it." I'm like, and right? You know, this goes back to Joan Wolf. Joan Wolf at one point said, 
Why do we have a women's category with the world records? Yeah. Why do we have two categories? I want to fish against the men. I can catch that same fish he can catch. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what. I've been around these tournaments a long time. Yep. I was in all the tournaments except for the one that Cat Linville won, the, mm-hmm. the permit tournament recently. But uh, Linda Robertson, she won the Golden Fly. Yep. She was the first woman to win a tarpon tournament against the men. Yep. And then Diane Rudolph won. Yes. And then Cat. Yep. I think that. And then Heidi a, was a contender in a lot of them. Uh, uh, she, Newt. Which, and she did compete. In yeah, the she, yeah. 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 She, she was, was in there. Yeah. I think that that was just absolutely amazing. I loved watching these women dive in there and beat the men. Yep. And now we have Wesley Locke yep. in the Tarpon Tournament. Oh, she's, that's a right. She's big competitor. Yeah. You guys better look out. She's going to smoke y'all's ass. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, I got second to Diane when she won the Holly. Oh, good for you. <laughs> no. I hope you kicked her, uh, kissed her butt. I did. Good. I was so good. happy for her. I really yeah. was. Good. Because it, um, it's a game changer. Mm-hmm. I think it's really a game changer. Well, I feel like if you are passionate ab- enough about fishing and, and you love the competition and then the whole camaraderie of the tournament system, um, I I never understood why there aren't more women fishing these right. tournaments. If this is what you love to do, mm-hmm. if this is truly your passion, then freaking get out there and do it. Fish right. them all. Yeah. See, the... As a woman, you can fish all the women's tournaments and the men's. As a men, you can only you only get half the pie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. But I mean, I fished a lot of offshore tournaments too, and not on. Well, I did a couple of fly tournaments offshore too. Yeah. Um, and did you know the the conventional offshore tournaments and um, some of the funnest tournaments I ever did were the IGFA offshore billfish tournaments and then the inshore tournaments. And the you qualifiers. Had, you had to qualify to even fish them. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And then if you won, you went to the final in Mexico somewhere yeah. or wherever that was. It was yeah. the Rolex World yeah. Championship. The Rolex World Rolex. Championship. You got like a Rolex right. watch or something. You, you did. Yeah, yeah. yeah if you if win you that. Yeah, I qualified that for a number of times. Anytime you win a tournament, you qualify yeah. for it, but I never went to the final. They um, were so much fun. Mm-hmm. They were so much fun. Well, let's not forget. I mentioned those three women women winning against the men. I you got you won you and Wesley won that 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 yeah. fish tournament in yeah. Guatemala. So I apologize. Oh, <laughs> it was fun. That was fun. Yeah. We had such a good time. Um, what what's next for you? Um, just keep fishing. I can't imagine doing anything else. And at my age, I'm going to just have to, and I had, you know, the back surgery. And then in the last two years, I've had some health issues, but everything's coming out fine now. And um, it really slowed me down a lot. I went from November until the about the end of this August without really fishing. And it almost killed me, but I physically couldn't do it. Yeah. And now I'm just making up for some lost time. I'm, I'm going to Louisiana on Saturday and then going to Cuba with Stu Apt in a couple of weeks after that. And I'm just going to fish and fight for the Everglades National Park. Good for you. Did, did you have any desire to become a guide? No, none whatsoever. Because you wanted to be on the pointy end? I like the pointy end. <laughs> I like the pointy end. I knew end. that answer. Absolutely. And then what, what are you most proud of? Wow. I, you know, 
being alive. <laughs> I will um, tell you what I see. What? You can be really proud of chasing your dreams, chasing your heart, wherever it took you. Yeah. You are not afraid to pivot. You went in all directions, full speed. Yep. And that's why I love you. Oh, well, thank you. That's why I love Betsy Bullard. Oh, well, thanks. You've always been kind and generous and enthusiastic and... and uh, You've been all in with your with your heart yeah. and with your actions. So yeah. that's what I'm most proud about you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I like to think that if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it mm-hmm. um, in all arenas. Um, I just wish more people could open their eyes to what's really happening to the Keys and Everglades National Park, the waters and the fisheries. And it's not just the fishing part of it. It's the whole ecosystem. And there's so many people that come, and I'm not talking about just one time come down and fish and and leave. People that consistently fish and fish in the Keys, fish in Everglades National Park, fish the tournaments, do all of this, and then turn around and leave and don't think twice about it. And it's kind of like, you know, you need some rules of engagement here. You know, if you're going to use it, you got to help support it. Um, I don't know how to make that happen, but I'm very disappointed that there's not more people standing up for this. Because, you know, the whole southern end of Florida, that whole water system, which is why everybody loves to come there. Sure. Whether it's to be on the water, to fish, to just look at the beautiful water, to be in that whole ecosystem, um, it's it's being abused, and it's not nature doing it. Um, developers. Developers and big sugar, and it's all about money mm-hmm. and nothing about our natural resources and everglades national park it's a national park people you know it's not just some swamp yeah it's a great bump bumper sticker you said if you're going to use it you got to help save it yeah and and you know if if yellowstone national park one of their rivers got polluted by some big farm or some big agricultural company Everybody in the country would be screaming about it because it's Yellowstone National Park and everybody knows about it. Even people that had never been there would be screaming about it. And we we don't we're not getting anything. Yeah. Maybe you need a star in a Everglades TV show make that more popular. The Swamp, Swamp Witch. Witch. The Swamp She's Witch. coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Betsy, thank you so much. So you've got a wonderful story, and you've been a great friend. So well, thank you for sharing your, your story with us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for letting me talk about fishing for so long. You it, got it. It's a rare event. <laughs> Thanks, Betsy. You're the best. Thanks, yeah. Nikki. The bottom line is, we need more Betsy's. Someone who cares deeply about the fishery, the environment, and the natural world around them. Thanks for coming on and telling your story. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon. Just so right.